Coming to you from Podcast Detroit, it's Heard, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes. And for future episode information and additional content, head over to HerdPodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at HerdPodcast. Welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. I'm Joe Hakeem. Tonight, we're coming to you from the Sugar House in Detroit, Michigan, the Corktown neighborhood of Detroit, Michigan, and we have our full crew tonight. Vato. How's it going? Dave. Hello. Nick. Hello. Jason. It's a celebration. And our very special guest, the United States Ambassador for Glenfiddich Scotch. Dave Allardyce. Afternoon, gentlemen. So it should be noted that this is our first uh, remotely recorded podcast, and we are all huddled around a two-top. Um, there are five of us, six of us, six, six of us, six of us um, huddled we, around a table for two. We have whiskey, two. so that's, that's going to help. It's a social lubricant. <laughs> so, so let's imagine this actually Stop happened. touching me, Nick. Let's, <laughs> if this actually happened in a real situation, six people gathered around a table, would you be like, knock it off, or just be like... You mean specifically here? Right here. If this I'd was like, happening in real life... I'd be like, we can give you guys another table. You don't, you don't some, have to be that weird. You know if somebody walks by the window right now and sees us, they think we're conspiring right now yeah. for some sort of... <laughs> totally. Under, underhand tactics. It's like Alexander Hamilton well, stuff here. Yeah, exactly. With your with your accent, you sound like a like a bad guy from a James Bond movie. So. <laughs> I lo- I'm enamored with the Scottish the Scottish Scottish accent. Yeah, well, Scottish it's, it's funny because if you, we used to watch shows in the UK and they were usually produced in the south of England, and it was always, you know, the drug dealer, the violent criminal. <laughs> they always were Irish or Scottish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. It's, that sums you guys up as a people, huh? Perfect. <laughs> you know. And, uh, uh, hey, I've I, seen Train Spotting. Okay, I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> I've read Irvin Welsh. There's a Train Spotting too coming. Uh, I know. Is it really? Can't oh. wait to see it. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. I think it's out in the UK now. Danny Boyle again. The same cast. Wow. Cool. See, I'm more, way more excited about the the new Ducktales that's coming out with oh, uh, yeah. David Tennant voicing uh, Scrooge, Scrooge McDuck. McDuck. Wow, so. also Scottish, amazing. Yeah, thanks for sharing, Nick. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for your contributions. Um, so, Joe, you want to talk about? We're going to talk about Scotch a little bit. What is Scotch? Well, that's a question. Do you know anything about Scotch? I I, I know. Uh, I mean, just from being in Scotland, visiting a couple distilleries, um, I I probably know Damn. less, a lot less than Dave does. Glenfiddich, Dave, that is, or Dave K, for that matter. So I think you guys should talk about scotch, and uh, I'll, I'll drink to that. Fair enough. I got, I got, I got something to play if you don't mind. Before that, just uh, we can go back to the '90s on this one. The scotch on the rocks, please. Any scotch will do, as long as it's not a blend, of course. Uh, single malt, Glenlivet, Glenfiddich, perhaps, maybe Glengow, any Glen. 
<laughs> Glenny Glenn. Glenny Glenn. It's pretty safe. Any Glenn will do. 90s, <laughs> 90s swingers right there. 90s swingers. Nice, uh, nice throwback that. there. Fantastic. I like it. I like it. Um, so, so, so you're gonna you're gonna correct me when I when I put my foot in my mouth. But Scotch is uh, is whiskey made in Scotland. Absolutely right. I'm I'm right so far. Yeah. And so single malt has got to be from the same distillery. From one distillery, it could yeah. be a blend of years. Absolutely. As long as the bottle has the youngest. Yeah, whiskey in the bottle. Yeah, the number the number represents the youngest whiskey. The youngest whiskey. Yeah, right. which is different from some other spirits such as rum. Sure. Quite often you see which a is just an arbitrary number. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's 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 mention what Scotch doesn't have to be, because a lot of people tend to think that Scotch whiskey is gonna be smoky and peaty and like you know barbecue like, and those whiskeys that are from Scotland that use that style are delicious. You know, you've got some really well-known whiskies like Laphroaig and Ardbeg and Lagavulin. Um, but if you look at Scotch whisky across the board, I would say the vast majority, probably close to 90% of single malts, are not peated. So we the, can get into that further. Yeah, that's really where I, I was introduced um, to, uh, to Laphroaig. And it had, if you guys have had it, I know some of you have, it's got this unbelievable flavor profile that is just just a smoke bomb. And I, I've grown to love those whiskeys. And I think my day-to-day heavily peated scotch would be Lagavulin 16, even though it's like quadrupled in price in the last so many years. Um, but but still, now, then I, that was the easy part for me. It was like the, the smoke was easy because it was so different from the bourbon. Um, or the the American whiskeys that I was accustomed to drinking at the time, um, and then moving into some of the other non peated or not as heavily peated scotches is really I think where you find the finesse in the different scotch expressions. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and you know I would obviously because I'm I'm talking about Glenfiddich every day and it's a non peated whiskey, but I love peated whiskeys, but I do find that it's more difficult to get um, a real depth of different flavour profiles within a smoky style of whiskey because that smoke character the peat character that comes through is very dominant completely so it's, it's, even though you can use different casks and different ages and different blends that when you have a peated whiskey that's, that's, that is the characteristic that tends to override everything else for me yeah we, we went to one of the Ardbeg, Ardbeg Day parties. Yeah. You, you're familiar with that? Yeah. So they, re, they release um, a, a specific whiskey once a year called Ardbeg Day. It's like D-A-I-G-H or something. I don't know what it is. But anyway. I think so. Something like that. So they, have like, they had five different Ardbegs. Ardbeg is a very, very heavily peated scotch. Like regular Ardbeg, Alligator, Ugadale, The Day, whatever it was. And I mean, after sipping on these five whiskeys for half an hour, all you can taste is like ocean salt i mean you know there's just like smoke and salt is all that's left and it's like there's no real new you know they are nuanced if you're a massive connoisseur and you're able to pick those apart but for me it's it all kind of goes the way of the smoke you know yeah i totally agree um yeah and and so when you taste a a range of whiskeys that from a a non-peated distillery you if you're looking at using different cast sherry and, and port and rum and different things like wine casks those components are able to give you a, a much wider range of flavors across a portfolio than if you if you start out with a very peated, heavily peated barley. Kind of everything that's going to come from that is going to lead with that flavor. So for sure. Now, with your mash bill, do you have to have a certain sp- uh, percentage to be called Scotch? And if it's not, does that become something else, or can you make like a bourbon 
Like, that's not called a bourbon, obviously. Yeah. And that's still a scotch if it's made in Scotland. Well, obviously, bourbon has to be made in the United States, right? right? But like a um, corn whiskey. But a corn whiskey, exactly. So, scotch whiskey in general, David touched on this earlier, it, it basically is a whiskey made from, you know, it's made from fermented grains. Mm-hmm. Um, so, scotch whiskey can be made from any grain. Okay. But as long as that process was carried out in Scotland now, when you drill down and get more specific, you've got your two main categories that we, we all know, blends, which is a, a blend of different whiskies from different distilleries using different grains and doesn't have to be distilled using copper pot stills. Single malt Scotch whisky is from one distillery, so the single means one distillery. Um, the malt means it's 100% malted barley. Okay, so single okay. malt Scotch whisky is absolutely tied to being made in Scotland from one distillery from malted barley. Okay. So I have a question about the uh, age. Is age only as relates to the time that it's in the barrel? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I remember years ago when I started doing tastings, there was somebody in the crowd, and it's not the first time I've been asked this question, but it was, you know, if I've got a 15-year-old bottle at home and I've had it on the shelf for five years, is that now effectively a 20-year-old whiskey? I was like, no, you've just got a dusty old bottle of 15-year-olds. Yeah. So I wish that's how that works. <laughs> yeah, no, unfortunately. Yeah. My Buffalo Trace is not worth anything more. Yeah, it, it goes into glass and it stops maturing because it's only maturing because of the oak. And that's another thing with whiskey, you know. Obviously, with bourbon, it has to be as a new oak. Scotch whiskey, we don't specify if it has to be new or used, typically used. The only thing that we do specify is that it has to be aged in oak of some sort. What if you have a bunch of bourbon, though, and you put it back into a barrel and leave it there for five years then it's re-aged it's re-aged so, i see angel's envy is called bourbon whiskey yeah is that the thing when they put the word whiskey after it is that what saves them well from i calling think it bourbon? I, no i think they can call it i think they can call it bourbon because it started life as bourbon but they think that now because there's no classification for finishing it uh-huh. so they basically take bourbon and then they finish it by putting it in a secondary cask right. um i think they can just still just call it bourbon i think they're just calling it bourbon whiskey so people are to appeal to a broader market because people are like, oh, this is bourbon whiskey as opposed to bourbon or whiskey. Yeah. I think it's just a marketing thing. Okay. I, don't know. I, I think that may, there, may be, um, there may be a legal classification coming down the pipeline about um, um, secondary finishing for American whiskeys. Mm. Like they just implemented the thing in uh, Tennessee about the Lincoln County process. So now Tennessee... Whiskey legally has got to go through the Lincoln County process, which means it's charcoal filtered. At the, the new make is charcoal filtered, yeah. and then it goes in the barrel. Um, <clears throat> but I, so I think that there are some changes coming to the secondary thing, the second, the secondary barreling thing. Cool. Is there any truth? I saw online that there was potentially talk of uh, age statement, um, the Scotch age statements changing the, the rules around age statements on Scotch is that a thing? I think you're referring to some noise that's been made by uh, Compass Box. Okay. The so there's a couple of things that happened recently. One was, you know, there, there's some whiskies out there, not a lot, but there's a few that have a combination of really old, a little bit of really old whiskey combined with um, some younger whiskies, and obviously, like we mentioned earlier, if you want to put an age on a bottle of Scotch. It has to reflect the youngest drop of whiskey in there. So if you have a little bit of six-year-old in the mix, even regardless if you have 25-year-old whiskey in there, it's got to be called six-year-old. So therefore, that's where the no-age statement thing comes into play. It's like, why would you um, destroy your ability to sell a really great product? You, you basically, you anchor yourself to a price point if mm. you put an age statement on there. Right. So if you put six years old on there, 
and it's got all this older whiskey, the customer looking at the shelf or in the bar doesn't know that unless they're hand-sold. So the, um, one of the things that happened recently was Compass Box wanted the Scotch Whiskey Association, who are funded by the, the other distilleries in Scotland, um, so they're in the best interest, for the most part, of, of the distilleries, but uh, they, they set the rules and regulations of what Scotch whisky is classified as. And so, um, currently, you're not allowed to put a breakdown of casks. So, for example, you couldn't put on the back of a label contains 5% 20-year-old, um, 8% 30-year-old. You, you can't do you're that. You're not allowed to do that. And, he, and here's why I think that is, a, is actually a good thing. And this is, is going to divide whisky people around the world. Because I think it would be great if you could classify and say... I want information. We all want information. We want to know what we're drinking, and it's really cool to people that are geeky about whiskey. But the, the problem with doing that, I think, opens up uh, the opportunity for people to exploit that. Imagine so like put it in a barrel imagine, for like a day. Well, imagine you have a three-year-old whiskey as your base, and then you put like a teaspoon of twenty-one-year-old in there. Right. Depending on how you package that 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 label, you could have it very misleading to say twenty-one-year-old whiskey. It might say contains. But it could be very misleading, right. and I think that's the problem. Is like people would potentially abuse it, and I think that I mean it's, it's kind of a, a torn. I'm, I, I like what Compass Box mm-hmm. are trying to push with having full transparency of what's it, what's in the makeup of a whiskey. But you can I can also see the logical side of why maybe it, yeah. w- it won't ever happen. But then they also brought out a whiskey recently that was called um, Three Year Blend Deluxe or something like that. Three Year Deluxe, and I think they made a point of saying it was a statement to say you know we're putting a little bit of three year old in here. But we're putting all these other whiskeys in there. It was like a, a very good PR thing, I think. Interesting. Yeah, they do pretty cool stuff. They're, yeah. they're definitely one of the newer. They're. I mean, they're negotiant, right? They're not. They're not distilling anything themselves, or are um, they? You know, I I couldn't say 100 percent if they aren't, but they're known for blending other yeah. stocks. Yeah. yeah, which is not an uncommon thing no. to Scotland. I mean, Gord McPhail and a ton of these other companies. Rad Array. I, I, mm-hmm. We were talking earlier. I, Love some of those red arrays, and this is basically the concept of negotiant, where these guys are—they call it negotiant in France. I don't know what they call it in Scotland. Independent, Indep- independent, IB. yeah, IB bottler, sure. non, non-producer distillers, NDP, yeah. non-distiller, non-distiller producer, producer. In, in America is what we call them. But these are guys yeah. that are basically, you know, uh, curating, selecting your your high wests of the world, your uh, your uh, old scouts, smooth ambler kind of guys. They're they're curating really great whiskeys. They're they're maybe aging them themselves. Sometimes they're buying new make and they're aging it in their own barrels. I've heard of various different scenarios, but really yeah. cool, really cool to be able to go out and get a you know get a twenty one year from one of these um, one of these uh, these guys and compare it against the original. You know, see how many absolutely. You know, how many distilleries are there in Scotland for people that might not know? I think how widespread is it? No, there's about. Probably one between, I think, roughly one fifteen to one twenty single malt distilleries in Scotland. There have been a number of very tiny. Um, I almost used the word craft, but you know that was going to be my next question. It's such an overused word. Like, <laughs> yeah. What does that even mean? Like every distillery. Like if you think about any major distillery, like let's just talk about Glenfiddich, just because I have that knowledge at the top of my head here. When we built the distillery in 1887, you had a distillery that was built based on three stills that the founder, William Grant, purchased from Cardew. So every time we've increased the capacity of the distillery, we now make more malt whiskey than other distillery in Scotland. But all we did was we duplicated what we did before. So you just double. So if you were a tiny, let's say you were a tiny distillery with three stills and you made you know a handful of barrels 
every day, you would be considered craft, right? Because you're small. So just because you take that process and you grow it and you scale it, you didn't necessarily cut any corners or change what you do. Sure. You're just making more of it. So anyway, there's a lot of small distilleries. Uh, about 120. I think there's about five grain distilleries. Um, so obviously Scotch whiskey, as we know, is founded on blended scotch, uh, which is using mostly grain whiskey produced in a column still and mixing it with different single malts um, from other other distilleries. So still about 90% of Scotch whiskey globally is, is blended. Hmm. So the single malt... Uh, world is still very very small but eating away at the blended market every day and and, yeah do you see so obviously by being in scotland you can call yourself scotch do you see people that are coming in and making a land grab saying i'm going to open open a distillery put barley in there malted barley just so i can call it scotch but maybe the product's kind of inferior do you see people kind of doing that just to get a scotch name or am I overthinking it too much? Are you thinking about? Are you talking about? Um, no one in specific. In other countries? No, I'm just thinking like if like if a portfolio didn't have a scotch, it's a hey, we can just go to Scotland, we can open a distillery, and boom, we got scotch now. I mean, there's put it this way: there's plenty of companies, uh, distilleries out there that are not owned by Scottish companies anymore. Okay, so it's a business. Um, so it'd be easier to go buy one. You're saying? It's yeah. Well, I wouldn't say that. I think there's definitely room for. For growth there, okay. I mean, single malt whiskey is is on the up. It's probably growing, I think, about seven or eight percent every year. Single malt scotch. Um, so there's definitely it's a good time for for more distilleries to come. You look at what's happening in Ireland. I mean, there was probably I think traditionally there was like seven distilleries operating in Ireland. Now you look at a map of what's being built and what has been built. I mean, it's the entire country that the map is covered with distilleries mm. now. It's incredible. Cool. <laughs> That sounds like a good tour. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, I'm also waiting for that William Grant uh, trip to Scotland. So. I said there's opportunities. <laughs> so, uh, so, so speaking of like sort of the, the global um, whiskey market, I have found um, the, the barrel finishing, which is which is uh, effectively when you take a. It's not a new thing. It's been around for a long time. You mentioned earlier the first sherry finished barrel or bottle yeah. of scotch. It was a Balvenie Classic, uh, 1983. So Balvenie is. Is tied to the same family company as Glenfiddich, right? And I love, I love those. Probably my favorite scotches on a day-to-day basis that I'm buying and drinking. But um, so the the finishing of these these is basically the scotch gets to a certain point and then you stick it in a barrel. We're drinking right now the bourbon barrel finish, which is not uncommon for scotch. A lot of scotch is aged in former bourbon barrels. Uh, so has this spent its entire life in bourbon barrels? Was this finished in a bourbon barrel? So what this is uh, was specifically a, a whiskey designed for the U.S. market, the U.S. palate. Um, Fourteen years in a bourbon cask, right? So, like you said, vast majority of Scotch whiskey is aged in a bourbon barrel. That is what we use. So when somebody like Balvenie Twelve Doublewood, for example, it says on there, it says aged for twelve years in a whiskey cask, and the last six months in a sherry cask. So by saying whiskey cask, what they mean is an ex-bourbon barrel. Right. That's how that's how common that is, that they don't even specify on that bottle. So 14 years in a bourbon barrel, very standard. And then we finish this, so we take that whiskey perfectly good out of the bourbon barrels and we transfer uh, those whiskies into brand new charred American oak. Okay. Toasted and charred. So, um, like I said earlier, in Scotland, we don't have to use the uh, used or new. We can use either. Bourbon, there's a law that states you have to use new charred American oak. Of course. So we've decided to, to create something that's a little bit more stealing a little bit more idea from the from the bourbon world um, by using that finish for four or five months in the new oak what it does is it drives up the intensity and sweetness of the whiskey sure because the way I look at it is when we get the used barrels from the US 
they're softened up a little bit. You know, they take a little bit of that intensity out by the first maturation, which we actually like because we're aging our whiskies for 10, 12, all the way up to 50 years. Sure. So if we were to then have this, you know, if we were to use new oak, you would find less and less Scotch whiskies of that age because it just becomes overpowered by the wood. Right. I, th- I think this is a great... This is a great gateway, as we were talking about earlier, like the, the bourbon market is obviously on fire right now, and this particular product is a great gateway to you know introducing your American whiskey bourbon connoisseurs into into the scotch. I think so, yeah. So, I have a quick question about the barrels then. Uh, given what you were talking about earlier and what you just said about the, you know, scotch is traditionally aged uh, in ex-bourbon barrels because that char has mellowed out, right? It's already been aging bourbon for four to five years or longer. Now it's being aged in scotch. So given for this product that you take that and you're using new charred barrels for a three four months like you said yep. then how do you reuse those barrels because it doesn't seem like they've they still have a pretty good a char question. level right that like a really um it's a rare question we get asked i've been asked that a few times but that that shows somebody that understands this whole process of um using used barrels because uh typically <laughs> because typically you know the question we get asked is well which bourbon barrels are you using which companies and like i was saying earlier in the tasting we we tend to have contracts with bourbon distillers that states we want your casks after you've aged whiskey for four to five years so we don't want the new ones we don't want them super used either so about four to five years takes enough of that wood out then ship them to us um, so basically to use the new barrels it has to be brand new to be called new barrels so as soon as you've used it for, for this 14 year old for example it's a four month finish you're only taking a little bit of that power out as you're alluding to um, so it's effectively a first fill barrel for us that's what we call them when, when the barrels arrive from the US after they've held bourbon we call them first fill so that's now a first fill for us it's held, li- it's held liquid once already but we call it first fill so it's still going to age whiskey for us but if you look at our 12 year old or 15 year old or 18 year old whatever whiskey you want to look at it's a blend of many casks put together the way I look at when you fill a cask up with spirit on day one and you put it in the warehouse that is an ingredient it's like a spice rack yeah. so it's not like we have we fill 100 casks up on a Monday morning and then we throw them in warehouse 14 and we say, that's going to be 12-year-old in 12 years. It doesn't work that way, right? You basically build an inventory of spirit that's ageing and then you're able to pull from all your inventory to create, a, a, use those components to create a specific flavour profile. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Yeah. So you're just keeping an eye on them. So it's, and, it, yeah, it will, it, for example, it could go into something else. Like we've got other whiskies that don't have an age statement on them, for example. We've got... New, for example, if we've just filled that new cask once, we've finished this whiskey in it, and then we've used it, filled it again. You know, who who knows what we're going to be producing in five years, ten years? So that's like I'm saying, we now have all these components, these uh, sure. different spices, if you like, in your in your arsenal. And we don't truly know. I think I'd like way, to have one of those spice racks at my place. I, I, <laughs> it took a long time to explain that, but I think the easiest no, way to great. say it, if you could just sum that up, is. When you fill spirit into two identical casks on the same day, they both have the same opportunity to become a 12-year-old or a 50-year-old. Hmm. We don't know. So that's the best way, I think, of summing that up. So as a distiller, um, are you then um, tasting these barrels daily, or is there like a schedule? Like, this barrel gets tasted once a week. This barrel gets tasted once a month. How is that, as a distiller, how are you determining when am I going to check that product? Um, it's a great question and it's not something that I actually have information on in terms of very specific details I would love to mm-hmm. and I think spending some more time like actually working at the distillery to get 
access to that kind of information would be great. Uh, but I do know that there's a team that are called the Eyes that will go round, and, and this is traditionally speaking, they would go round and they would pull samples from the cast and they would look at it and say, okay, this is a 12-year, it looks roughly in line with what we would expect. Then samples of that batch of cask would then go to the lab and that would be nosed and sampled by the malt master, Brian Kinsman, and his team. The inventory now is a, a lot more... Um, it's much better, well, much more well managed is what I'm trying to say. So everything's barcoded now. It's a little less sexy when you walk into a warehouse. <laughs> you used to have the stencils on the side, you still do, but all the, the cast nowadays from most of the stories, they just have this little barcode on them. And, uh, you know, so we, we have a, a really uh, accurate understanding of, of the stock that we have. But yeah, I mean, in terms of the barrels that we have on site, between Glenfrick and Balvenie, because we share some things on site we share some of the warehouses we also share a cooperage we have about a million casks on site aging whiskey right now That's so crazy. so there's nobody going through and sampling every cask on a weekly basis <laughs> sure. there, there clearly is some sort of a batch method of doing this yeah. but I, I, I don't have the exact detail on how to do don't it don't you have like 500,000 in the basement here yeah, yeah. yeah about, about that about yeah. <laughs> is there an average aged years that uh, you guys put out or is it just really across the board between, you said, like 10 and 50? So, well, the 12-year-old is our youngest that we... Well, oh. it's, the, it's the youngest age statement that we have on the market anywhere in the world. And that's their, by far and away, our biggest seller. I think the 12-year-old is roughly 80% of our business. Oh, wow. Right? I mean, that's a, that's a whiskey that's a call. Mm-hmm. People walk into a bar and say, like, oh, you know, if you're going to call a scotch, you know, if you're going to ask for a single malt, you're going to call the brand, right? So... Quite often, if someone asks for Glenfiddich, that's what they mean. Mm-hmm. They're not. They're going to specify if they want the 14, 15, 18, whatever. Sure. Um, so because it's the youngest, it's the iconic green bottle. But it's been around for so long, people know it. Um, it sells a lot. That's that's a big point. I don't know if you could look at other spirits and say, you know, like as a bourbon, like I want a bourbon. I don't. I feel like some people might say I want a wild turkey or I want something like this. But I feel like a Scotch. You're totally right. People are say, you know, I want a specific brand. Especially nowadays, I think that you still have that scotch on the rocks, but I think that's dying off a little bit. I mean, especially the world that we live in. Yeah, people are definitely calling not only brands but numbers, years, yeah. specific expressions. And that, that I think also has a lot to do with, uh, like we were talking about the peated or the non-peated. Like, if you don't like peated scotch, you don't like peated scotch, <laughs> and like you know the brands that you don't like. Mm-hmm. So if you are a scotch drinker, you're going to say like and you don't like peated scotch, you're definitely going to call for one of the guys that are not as peated. Yep. Whereas in bourbon, you don't necessarily have that sure. complex yeah. of a... Yeah. That's a good yeah, point. That, that, yeah, that great of a gap between those. Speaking of, speaking of old scotch, if I can, so the Ladyburn, I was fortunate enough to get to sample some of that stuff. Uh, what's the story with it, just just overall? I think I had the 47-year-old. That's one, that's one of yours? Or am 40, I, yeah, yeah. So there was no. a 41. It was the 41. 41, yeah. 41, then they released the 42 last year, I believe, there should have been I haven't seen it actually anywhere but there should have been a 43 year old was the last release so um, two ghosted distilleries um, that were under ownership of William Grant Mm. and basically people want what they can't have so when you have a distillery that is no longer in existing Mm. when you have stock of that whiskey then it becomes very um, sought after so the 40 year it it was incredibly light for forty-year-old whiskey, yeah. I was amazed at the fruit component of it yeah. and the fact that it wasn't pitch black. And it wasn't 
very woody. Right. It wasn't this it wasn't big panic. sort of. Yeah. yeah it, it, it was so yeah. light. It yeah. was incredible. But yeah. you know, you just it just depends what kind of. Um, quite possibly the casks that that went into may have been used once or twice. Sure. So that enables you. You know, if you imagine to your point, Nick, about sampling casks. You know, we talked about this earlier. You need good spirit. You need good oak, and you need good uh, cask management. So those three components combined can give you a good whiskey, right? Or should. So you could have a great spirit and a great cask. If you leave it too long, it's too woody. Uh-huh. Take it out too soon, it's not ready. So with those older whiskies, quite often um, it actually benefits if you use a slightly more used cask uh-huh. because then it can mellow over a long period of time. Um, we released a 19-year-old that was all first-fill bourbon and it was, it was money, it was perfect, uh-huh. but... Had we left that in a first fill cast for maybe thirty, maybe longer, it might have become overdone and too right. too oaky. I also have to imagine if you have a barrel that's you know thirty plus years, when you go to sample that, you're drinking a decent amount of money with that sample, right? Yeah. So is there like do you have to like get special permission, or is there like a like one guy that like he's the only guy that can try the? Are you the, trying to get a pass to have yeah. special permission? <laughs> I mean, it, if that's a thing, I'll apply for it. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, well, they used to have a thing uh, at the distillery called a dipping dog. The guys that used to work in the warehouses. It was a, we've actually, I should have brought one. We've got these little, Balvenie has them, mini ones made up. Little copper test tube almost, mm-hmm. if you like, with a little cork on top and a, and a chain on the inside. So they would strap it to their belt and they would drop it in the inside of their leg. And then every now and again, they find a nice looking cask and they were feeling kind of thirsty on a Tuesday morning. They would uh, pull out the dipping dog, unbung the cork. Glug, 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 drop the, the the dipping dog in there, put a little sample, they've got a few drams t- for that day. Uh, obviously, that's frowned upon, it's illegal. Uh, the, the, the Queen, the queen hasn't had our tax money yet. Yeah, right. <laughs> Everything's uh, managed, but yeah, there's uh, there's ways, I guess. Yeah. That's, so that's interesting. You So you said the Queen hasn't had her tax. When you have to taste the product, does that get taxed? The product that's tested? Um, I think it's all accounted for. So Interesting. I think it basically works off of... I mean, obviously, you're getting evaporation, right? Right. Um, we're getting into some territory that I don't know a whole lot about. I know, I'm sorry. I'll back off. Yeah. In, the, <laughs> in, the States, it's, in the States, I think it's taxed on what goes into the barrel, and then we pay we pay tax again on what comes out of I the I think barrel. it's the same, actually. Yeah. yeah. But when we get samples, for example, <clears> from <throat> one of the American producers, we'll get, we'll That's get great. samples... Well, no, we'll get samples that say um, uh, non-taxable okay. for sample use only, and so that I think go like again when they're when you know two James is producing X amount of spirit, mm-hmm. they're putting in the barrel of this proof, and they're paying for that amount that goes into that barrel. Okay, and then what comes out again, they're selling to either the state through the MLCC or they're selling to their customers through the tasting room, uh, and they're 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 the secondary is paying tax on it again. So I think okay. Nick is double working. taxation. Nick's working for the IRS. I like it. I like it. Nick, come on. Yeah, yeah. I got a question about it. So, um, are are these kind of uh, Scotch whiskeys intended to be drinking neat, or do you do a lot of uh, good question? Uh, you know, mix mixes with it and come up with different concoctions. I mean, for, I mean, for you bar guys too, like the. It's a great question. I'm interested to hear what everyone thinks. Well, I mean, we are mixing today with for our event, which we're doing today. We're mixing with um, the Glen 12, but I think that uh, generally speaking, behind the bar, we're using something like a Grant Scotch as our as our blended Scotch to mix drinks with. And then, if we're looking for that peated note, we'll use an Ardbeg or a Laphroaig, which will give a, a cocktail, a mixed drink, a different 
um, level, but that's used by the dash, by the rinse, by the quarter ounce maybe. Oh, okay. But typically, I mean, I don't feel like if you if if we drink the Glen, the Glenfiddich 12 and the Glenfiddich 14 next to each other, I think you're going to notice some things about this guy that you wouldn't about the other guy or vice versa. I don't necessarily think that if we mix it with a bunch of lime juice and sugar, you're going to be able to pick up those nuances. Right, right. So we tend to stick to that sort of, you know, nice level of of blended scotch, which is, you know, a white horse, uh, Grant's, um, uh, maybe the monkey, monkey shoulder, things like that. Yeah, I think I totally agree with the the idea about not mixing it with a bunch of citrus. There, but you know, I like a stirred drink. Something that's sometimes fewer ingredients is better because you have a better opportunity for that that spirit to come out. There's there's, there's a whole different. There's, depends on who you speak to because. Coming from someone that works directly for the distillery, you know, we're we have so many things that we're trying to do when we're out there working and we're doing events and we're working with bartenders and and, and guests. We're not always trying to just be the geekiest whiskey geeks and pick out every single nuance in the whiskey. You know, there's a time and a place for that. We're doing it now, we're being very casual and drinking some neat whiskey. Sometimes when we're doing a tasting, we usually use Glen Cairn glasses, very specific, so you can get the nose. Those glasses are shaped in such a way that you can nose the whiskey very good. Not the most great uh, glasses for like a social setting. I much prefer these basic, old-fashioned type glasses. Uh, and, but then there's a time for cocktails where, you know, we might have some guests in the room that are not whiskey drinkers, but they were here to have a good time. And we're selling Glenfiddich, and we're we're creating a cocktail with that. Now we still want to make the best um, sort of. We want, we want to do justice to the whiskey so you have to be careful on how you mix it but there's definitely a place for it I just think that it can be tricky for some bars to do it because it, it, it can get expensive um, so that's definitely a massive consideration but let's get the snobbery out of the way you know we, okay when we get up to 21 year old pluses you know you, you then play a dangerous game if you want to put that in a cocktail yeah, right. <laughs> but you know there's a bit of common sense there you know treat it with respect but it's, it's whiskey, it's a drink, it's, it's supposed to be enjoyed it's not supposed to be, in my opinion um, sort of put on this pedestal and only drank on special occasions, it's like, why? Like, why limit? Yeah. Where did the scotch and water come from? Well, you, you mentioned that earlier, you enjoy, and I've, I've heard that a lot and I, I, specifically with the smokier scotches, the peatier scotches I do like to add a little bit of cooler water in, not mm. a lot, like a tablespoon maybe, yeah. for a couple ounces but you mentioned that you do that on a typical basis Yeah, that's <clears throat> it's it's almost like um, I don't really have a good analogy for it, but it's it's kind of like salt and pepper to your food almost. Um, always taste your food first. You shouldn't salt and pepper your food, but as it arrives to your table without tasting it. Same with the whiskey; you always should taste it first. But the way I order whiskey in a bar, pretty much you know all the time is is order it neat, ice water on the side with a straw. So I have my drink that that's going to you know satisfy my thirst. Then I have my delicious whiskey untouched, and then as I taste it, if it's a little bit too hot, it's just got a little bit too much heat to it, just a little little splash of water. And then you know, at lunch today, not that we drink at lunch every day, but we <laughs> not had, every day we, we ordered. Um, actually, we, we there was so many of us at the bar. We we opened a bottle of Glenfiddich 14 that hadn't been opened, and it, and it was done within two, one and a half rounds. <laughs> but I dropped an ice cube in there. And so it's it's like who cares you know just you know figure out what you like and, and and drink it that way. Amen. So we're so as we mentioned we drink we're drinking the fourteen. Could you maybe walk through how you would taste and um, you know sip on this 
maybe uh, kind of from an academic perspective or like how would you kind of talk through a tasting for this? Well, I, you know, it's... It, like what are we tasting in the 14 maybe what if you want to What we tasting? Go, yeah. So this is a little bit different from... Glenfrick 12, 15, 18 has been around for years and people know a certain flavor profile from that. So those three whiskeys, 12, 15, 18, are combining the kind of... Uh, more rich complex flavours from a sherry cask uh, with the sweeter kind of lighter flavours that you get from an American bourbon oak this one is specifically just American oak so you don't get that that kind of um, you don't get the dryness from the sherry you don't get as much complexity Uh I think this is a little bit more reminds me of bourbon in the sense that bourbon is quite direct and that's that that to me is part of the reason it works so well in cocktails as a very direct flavour um, same as your peated whiskies, whereas with the slightly more subtle um, single malts, you know that are not peated, they tend to have like a really wide spectrum of flavours in there. And as you sip it, it develops and it changes and it kind of evolves in your palate. Whereas bourbon, you drink it and you like sweet and oaky. You know, there's some nuances in there as well, but it's, it's you know you kind of know what you're getting. This to me, the 14 year old, is a little bit more in that direct kind of. It's sweet. It's a little bit. It's a little bit um, oaky. Tiny, tiny hint of spice. Um, it actually works really well in cocktails, believe it or not. Standard uh, bourbon cocktails, substitute the bourbon for the 14-year-old, actually works really well. Hmm. And it's 43% alcohol, which is not you know a massive jump up from the standard 40%, but it, it helps to make it pull through in a cocktail a little bit more with that extra alcohol. Mm-hmm. So, um, as, as a brand ambassador, do you ever do... Uh, Glenfiddich dinners where you're pairing food with the with the scotch. We, we've done many of those, and, and I've I've found that unless you take the time, have the luxury of being able to sit with the chef and taste the whiskies, or just have a chef that is so dialed into whiskey, um, it's very difficult to pull that off successfully across the entire dinner. And also, I don't know about you. I mean, I love whiskey; it's my go-to drink. But I very rarely have sat down and ordered a steak and thought. I know what I'm going to drink with this. Yeah. I'm going to drink Scotch whiskey. Yeah, yeah. It's usually like it can work with certain dishes, like fresh, you know, like sushi can often work quite nicely. Um, desserts is always. like the number one. Always, yeah. Sweet works so well. Um, I mean, dark chocolate has been one of the most um, common pairings with Scotch whiskey for years. But desserts, I would much rather do. We did something with a creme brulee with a chef. Basically, we took it, the same creme brulee, had three versions of it, but we changed the sugar that we used for the brulee on top and so that gave enough of a difference to where we paired that with three different whiskies so that was cool and fun I would much rather do something like that than do a standard four course meal where you almost feel like you're just forcing the issue of pairing a meal with a whiskey just because you have a 12, 15, 18, 21 to pair it with because the, the, the dessert pairing always ends up being the best yeah without question I mean the scotch the smokiness the salinity and uh, something sweet is just always you know is always perfect I mean I know a lot of the the, the PD whiskies. Uh, like um, some of the brands out there, Bowmore, for example, they've done a lot of um, experimentation and events with oysters. Oh, cool! Yeah, that, I get that. Yeah, yeah. I think that I works really that. well. Joe yeah. loves an oyster, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm very allergic to oysters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can Can you talk a second for the um, uh, experiment? The experimental. Uh, the IPA, yes, uh, Glenfiddich. So I hope Roger's not around. Yes, he heard it. He heard it from way over there. So Roger and I, last time I was in Detroit, uh, or actually it was on Facebook, I think. I 
promised that um, I would bring some IPA for him to try because it's not in Michigan yet, it's coming soon. By the time I get a bottle of IPA here for Roger, it's going to be in, in the market anyway. I, we're not holding our breath. Yeah. This is Michigan after all. It takes a while, does it? Yeah. Oh, yes. So Glenfiddich has had, like I said, the, the 12, 15, 18, and 21 has been around for many years. The 14 that we released a couple of years ago was the first new thing that was permanent, um, which, by the way, is only available in the US. For you know, we only Whenever I go back to Scotland, I have to take bottles back oh. with me, buy it here take it back to Scotland because you can't get it over there but this this new range that you mentioned Joe is called the Experimental Series and it's designed to open up people's eyes to Scotch whisky in a different way and try to be a little bit challenge conventions um, it's not going to be tied to an age statement range so the IPA is no age statement the second release which is coming in summertime is called Project 20 um, which is basically a collaboration of 20 brand ambassadors that pick casks and then the malt master blended those together and then um, later in the year there's going to be another one which will have an age statement on it so that's going to be a line that sets it sits outside of the, the age statement range so it gives the company it gives the malt master the freedom to do different things so the IPA cask for example or India Pale Ale cask as we've got to call it in the US because the is it the TTB Mm. Yeah, they they didn't like the fact that we had this IPA cask whiskey. They thought it was misleading because IPA is such a well-known term in the beer industry. They said, well, if you're going to do this, you have to call, spell it out and call it India Pale Ale cask. Mm. So we're the only market in the world where the bottle will actually say India Pale Ale cask on it. Wow. The rest of the entire cu- uh, world says IPA cask. Where are you getting the barrels from? So what we do is we age Glenfiddich in a, a bourbon barrel. Um, we don't know the age, but fairly young uh, and part of the reason for that is they did a lot of experimentations and they said that if you used older whiskies, it didn't pull out as much of the flavour from the beer cast so okay. what, what we did to get the beer flavour is we partnered with Speyside Brewery which is a, a tiny brewery just up the road from the distillery and we created this very hoppy IPA which is to the point, I just tasted it for the first time uh, last month, it's, it's hoppy to the point where I wouldn't want to drink it Wow, but the brewer Seb, great guy, they, yeah. they worked closely with Brian Kinsman and they said, instead of, you know, typically when you put beer or whiskey in a cask, you're trying to pull flavour from the cask. But because we were trying to get beer flavour into the whiskey, they were trying to drive flavour from the beer into the cask. Hmm. So they, they kind of reverse engineered it and, and they created this beer that would push flavour into the cask. So they created this beer, put it in the bourbon barrel for about um, four weeks. Wow. And then they took that out, and then they put this fairly young Glenfiddich into that cask for about four months. Wow! And it's bottled at forty-three percent. Wow! It's fresh, it's citrusy. It's it's not in any way hoppy, or it doesn't taste like an IPA, but it is different. It's, it's yeah. Very I, am, I imagine it would probably pick up a lot of those tropical fruit notes and things yes, like that. Yes, absolutely. The hop, the hop profile. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. yeah it sounds like it. Is there anything? So, as a as a rep or as a uh, you know, ambassador. Is there anything that uh, our tens of listeners can do to help your job out, make it easier? Things to check out, <laughs> things to buy. Million, we're in three <laughs> three million in following. At this point. What what can our what can our vast following do to help make your job easier? Drink well, more scotch. I mean, at the end of the day, I I, I know Scotch whiskey drinkers and, and people that get into Scotch whiskey are going to end up the same. You like to try different things, mm-hmm. and I'm the same. You know, people ask us, "What do we do when we're not drinking Glenfiddich?" Yeah, I'm trying something new. So every time we go into a whiskey bar and you know we're not drinking Glenfiddich or we're just like specifically trying to 
broaden our, our knowledge, order something we never had. So, you know, typically at the end of a tasting, I'll just say to people, you know, I appreciate you drink other whiskies. Maybe next time you order a whiskey, you make it a Glenfiddich. Yeah. And that would help me out greatly. But, you know, it's, it's just nice to get in front of people and let them try the range and then maybe open their minds up. Maybe people have had the 12 but never had the 14. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, wow, um, I forgot about Glenfiddich. But now I remember it because it's something new. Out. So, so where can people find you uh, on Instagram? Instagram is Glenfiddich underscore Dave. And then, you know, just type in... Uh, on Facebook, Glenfiddich. Uh, my name will pop up as Glenfiddich Dave. And uh, your hashtag that you like to use is what? Well, it depends. <laughs> the, 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 the Wu-Tang. Well, we did, I thought you were going for that one. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we've tried to do a few different events where it's not just a sit-down whiskey tasting, and I DJ as well. So I've been doing sort of some Wu-Tang hip-hop-themed nights called uh, Wu-Tang Drums. And it's been getting a lot of buzz, and a lot of people have been requesting me to come to their city to play one of these events. So it's, it's worked out nicely. So what's the hashtag, though? It's hashtag Wu-Tang Drums. Wu-Tang Drums. And, and casks rule everything around me, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's another 